Hello and welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. My name is Charles Lego and I'm your host. On this week's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Once a month, we're going to bring you an episode of this podcast that's dedicated to all things sports in Rancho Cordova. I have invited Mike Mirando to sit in as guest host. Mike is one of the founders of the Rancho Cordova Sports Hall of Fame and well-versed on the many athletes and sports figures that started their careers right here in Rancho. We will hand over the studio to Mike, who will interview a sports personality that had their start here in the city. We're very excited for this first sports episode and for his first guest. Now, please welcome Mike Mirando, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast, brought to you by the California Capital Film Office. I'm Mike Mirando, and I'm honored to have been asked by Charles Lego to bring you the first in a monthly series of podcasts focused on Rancho Cordova's storied sports history. In particular, the many athletes that have helped shape what our city has become today. And for our young families out there with children, you're going to get a front row seat at the hallowed playgrounds where some of our early legends plied their craft. I think that's what I'll enjoy most about the next hour to an hour and a half today, bringing our listeners these stories as told by the athletes themselves. Our guest today was a terrific schoolboy athlete, a left-hander known for a devastating and electric fastball as far back as Little League. And of course, I have a personal experience with this fella as he uh, struck me out on three pitches when I was an 11-year-old back in 1967. But we're going to be talking about a stellar career for Cordova's Lancers, where today's guest amassed a 23-1 varsity record while establishing numerous league and area records. As a junior, he went 13-0, pitched seven shutouts, all complete games. We're going to be talking about that, too. But in 1975, at the tender age of 20, this fellow became the second on a now very lengthy list of Cordova High School athletes to play Major League Baseball. He went on to pitch 11 seasons in the majors with the Phillies, Brewers, Expos, and his hometown San Francisco Giants, fulfilling a boyhood dream of pitching in the big leagues. And he's got quite a story to tell about redemption and the power of faith through his book, God in the Bullpen, his own personal memoir. He's available to speak to groups large and small about the dangers of drugs and alcohol addiction and how God's great grace led him to sobriety. And over the course of the next hour or so, we're going to get into all that and talk a little bit about baseball with Randy Birch. Uh, as we were walking out the door, uh, my, uh, my doctor put his arm, I'd met him just for the first time, my liver specialist put his arm around me and said, I just want you to know that you can go into liver failure any any minute, any day. And so basically when I walked out the door, I was a walking dead man. Randy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Mike, uh, and thank you for the kind words. Absolutely. You know, you grew up in Rancho at an exciting time, uh, as did I. Uh, it seems like our, our uh, paths crossed many times beginning when we were kids. Uh, Aerojet was fully engaged in the space program and Mather Air Force Base was a major hub for the military. Tell us a little bit about how Randy Lurch grew up in, in Rancho Cordova and what it was like back then. 
Well, what a difference it is now, Mike. As, as you know, my, my old uh, high school uh, classmate you are, uh, it's great being here and great to have you interview me. And, uh, you know, Rancho Cordova was, was just like kind of a mom and pop town uh, where, you know, the families got together and, and uh, you know, the, the, they did sports together. They did events together, uh, you know, with, like uh, with me, with my father and family. We, we went uh, hunting, fishing. Uh, you know, American River was a, a big deal. You know, I remember getting out and uh, my dad showed me the tree that uh, that still had the rope uh, that we we would go out and and, uh, and swing off of. Of course, I was a big chicken at first, but you know, <laughs> uh, dad dad says, you know, you big chicken, you know, you better get out there and do that. So you know, we we did that kind of stuff. It was. Uh, it was always, uh, you know, lunches, uh, out uh, uh, striper fishing uh, my, with my, my grandma. We called her Nani. It was my dad's uh, mom. And uh, we just did everything together. And, uh, of course, uh, my dad was a, uh, he, he was a great athlete. He, uh, he played for the Sacramento Solons. He was a semi-pro player. And, you know, his passion was sports. He, he, he played also with the, uh, he's a, was a fire chief. Uh, with the Ranch Grove Fire Department, so they played uh, their basketball. But uh, you know, my dad's passion was was baseball, and from a young age, I remember it, uh, when I was. They're starting even younger now, but I think seven, eight years old, he had had me out, uh, you know, teaching me the fundamentals, which was so important to him, of, uh, of being able to wind up the correct way, how to hit, how to practice, and. His one thing he always told me, Mike, was it just depends on, you know, how bad you want it. So if you want it worse than the other guy, make sure you did one more, one more lap than than, than that guy. So, you know, he he my my father, uh, he just uh, he set that standard for me, and and I took it from there. One of the things uh, that really struck me is, uh, you know, how your parents met, Randy. And you know they were local. I know your mom, Barbara, worked in a local bank. How important was she in your in your life? Mom was uh, the the stay at home hold uh, at home mom. You know she was uh, I forget her name. She was the leave it to Beaver mom. You know I had uh, uh, three other brothers, uh, two other brothers and one sister. Uh, I remember uh, you know mom would would try to get all the kids ready. You know we're pretty much. Uh, born at the same time you know with, you know just a few years apart and I remember mom uh, you know trying to get breakfast together for all of us kids and you know one of her favorite quickies was uh, hot chocolate and toast and mom had that uh, you know that two slot uh, uh, you know uh, a toaster for the uh, you know for the toast and she made that thing work as, as fast as you could, and then the hot chocolate gone. So we would hurry up and dunk our, our hot chocolate, and you know, and hurry up and get over, brush your teeth, throw your coat on, and get out the door. And that's pretty much what mom did, uh, except for a while that she did work at uh, as a, as a teller uh, in a bank. I forget the, the name of the bank, but it was right there across, uh, you know, from Folsom Boulevard. It was either Wells Fargo or Bank of America or something like that. So mom worked there, and, and dad uh, ended up being a, a fireman and uh, working his way up to fire chief. But, you know, they ended up meeting Mike uh, at the old Folsom High School. And 
you know, uh, I remember, uh, you know, dad's sister, older sister Doris went there and dad used to talk about uh, that uh, when Folsom first opened, they didn't even have enough kids to, to uh, fill the, the football team. I think, you know, they, they, they went short a few times if, if everybody didn't show up and, you know, they, they played their, their sports and mom and dad ended up getting married uh, after they graduated. I think they were both around 20 years old, and, you know, the rest is history. Wow. You know, that's one of my earlier remembrances of you and your dad is when I was 11, uh, playing in the Mills Little League. Uh, as I had referenced earlier, uh, our coach, uh, Mr. Carrero, sent me up to pinch hit against you. True story. We're down, I don't know, eight or nine runs. He sends me up in the sixth inning to pinch hit against you. You were legendary already. Uh, you were a year older than me. But uh, I'm, I'm looking at this going, you've got to be kidding. You struck me out on three pitches. I was so scared. The bat was on my shoulder all three pitches. It was the proverbial good morning, good afternoon, <laughs> good night, and that was it. And I walked back to the dugout, and Rick Vanderpool, who you played with, looked at me and said, couldn't you have at least swung? I said, are you kidding? <laughs> It was, uh, it, you had a menacing fastball even then, and uh, you made the all-star team, and I remember they were raising funds to go back to Williamsport should the all-star team uh, progress. I think you guys won your first three or four games and then finally ended up losing in one of the regionals out here. But uh, that really set the stage for uh, quite, a, quite a career. Uh, I want to get into the book a little bit, but before, I wanted to spend a few moment, moments and tell us about your co-author, Hal Lurch. Uh, you two are not related, but you do have a lot of commonalities. Talk to us a little bit about how. It, it's an amazing story, and you know, I, uh, as you'll find out as we talk, you know, I, I, uh, I try to give God credit for everything, and I, and there's certain things I believe in our life that, you know, you, it's not, it's just not a coincidence. And uh, after I made it to the big leagues, uh, I made it to the Phillies. It was my first team out of four, and. Uh, so Hal Lurch, you know, the same last name, his family uh, lived in the area uh, outside of Philadelphia. And Hal's dad, Hal's a few years older than me, but his dad was a super Phillies fan. And as you probably just saw in the World Series, that uh, those fans are really, you know, they're really, really very loyal to, to uh, their hometown fans. So Hal's dad used to bring him to the, uh, uh, to the Phillies game. And they were uh, really excited about having a, a starting pitcher with the Phillies with the same last name. So here, here his dad brings Hal to the game, and Hal ends up uh, asking if uh, through uh, the guard that was uh, in the dugout before the game if I would sign his baseball. And I, I ended up, he, he tossed it to me, and Hal, I think Hal tell, tells the story a little bit differently, but it ended up that, I signed the autograph for Hal, and you know Hal was you know again he was following me throughout my career and stuff like that. And then when we both retired, especially Hal, he had gotten into ancestry, and uh, he started he was very interested in ancestry, not just for his family history, but he was especially interested if we were uh, you know if 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 we were related, and so he looked through all that and. As he found out things, and, and I was uh, with Irish Construction, retired at that time, 
he would start emailing me of what he found out. And he was amazing. I mean, he, he, he belonged to clubs and stuff like that. He went back to uh, and sent me history on every family member that I had on both sides, my mom's and dad's. And so finally I, I, I thought, man, this is just so ama amazing, Hal. Uh, uh, could you, uh, would, would you like to come and visit? And what was amazing, uh, and had this at this time had nothing to do with the book. It, uh, it was just, I, I just felt so uh, thankful that, that he had done that. I mean, he really spent so much time doing that. And, uh, and so uh, I, Hal ended up coming and visiting, and uh, we talked about, uh, you know, we got to know each other a little bit. He just stayed, he stayed a few days. Uh, let me know that we were not uh, related. And uh, this is just, before you even started talking about the concept for a book. No, that, yeah, that is before we even started uh, talking about the concept for a book. It was just talking about the ancestry. He had thrown at me, oh, you ought to write a book someday. Had nothing to do about alcoholism or anything. He just wanted to write a book because, lo and behold, I didn't know it, but uh, Hal had already written a couple books and, and Hal starting into getting into Christian writing. But all that was kind of a mystery when they left, and, uh, you know, there's more of the story to come. <laughs> In your book, you talk about Hal Lurch. When you made the big leagues, he was just overjoyed. How about that, a Lurch making the big leagues? Yes, he, he was overjoyed, and, and uh, when he came to visit, you can imagine. Here's a, here's a, I mean, this guy's a top Phillies fan, right? I mean, he, his family had, had just, uh, I mean, born, he was born and raised Phillies fan. He was... Uh, you know, his dad taught him, and, and then when I invited him, I had set up a uh, kind of a love me, uh, you know, all my memorabilia room and stuff like that. But I had, I mean, tons and tons of articles that uh, uh, that Hal had, uh, you know, that I had showed Hal when he got to the, to the house. And at that time, I was just starting to get my cirrhosis, and I was so sick, and I didn't know why. And so I would kind of go to bed early and just left Hal to, uh, to just, just kind of just, uh, I guess, uh, just swim in all these articles and stuff and kind of live, live back his, his childhood history. We're talking today with Randy Lurch, a longtime Cordova High School star and, of course, uh, a, a personal friend and uh, confidant here uh, at uh, Cal Capital Film Office. Randy, families, one of the things that struck me in your book is that families certainly have challenges, uh, to be sure. But in your book, you talk about something that really stood out. You never saw your parents argue in all the years that they were married. Now, that is extraordinary. Tell me a little bit about that and the benefits that that had you I impacting your family. I just, I never saw them argue. I'm, I'm sure they did, but they just didn't do it in front of the kids. Uh, I don't know if it was from, you know, the old time, old school type of thing. But, uh, you know, uh, I know that, you know, my dad was the head of the house and, and my mom uh, was there to support him. You know, they had the four kids and stuff like that. And, and uh, I never really see, saw them argue. But, uh, you know, it, I'm sure I'm sure they did. But we, we grew up in a, in a good family and, and did a lot together. You have some brothers and sisters as well. Tell us a little bit about them. I do. I, I have two brothers and a sister. Uh, my brother behind, you know, uh, after me was Steve. 
uh, and then Sandy, the, we call her the princess, and, and then Jeff. And uh, Jeff's the baby. And as of right now, uh, Steve and Jeff, uh, Jeff, my, my brother Jeff has been a commercial crab fisherman, trawler fisherman out of, the, uh, out of Alaska with, uh, you know, kind of like the guys with the deadliest catch. He, you know, he, he, he fishes out of those areas. And now both my brothers, Steve and Jeff, own a, a commercial fishing boat. Uh, out of Oregon, and uh, and my sister, she grew up uh, as an as an accountant uh, in kind of like uh, the different hamburger chains and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, we we were again we were a close family and and just uh, you know we went our separate ways. Now, Steve and Jeff are actually on a crab boat. They 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 bought a ca- crab boat together. My brother uh, uh, Jeff runs it. Uh, but uh, but Steve, yeah, they 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 run it out of uh, out of Oregon area. I've watched the deadliest catch a number of times, and uh, it takes a special constitution to uh, to do that. That's, They're crazy. That's for sure. <laughs> Getting back to your Corova days, you know, you played with some terrific guys: uh, Niles Nyman, Jerry Manuel, Mike Ondina, among others. Uh, tell us a little bit about those couple of years that you played varsity ball here. I, uh, Mike, I didn't realize, uh, you know, we, we, I was surrounded with so much talent, so I didn't really realize how good it was. I knew we, we won almost every game, if we didn't, if not every game, but uh, when we had, uh, you know, Larry Wolf, who I consider to this day uh, the best athlete that ever came out of Cordova High School. I mean, this guy could do everything. He could play basketball, baseball, great in football. And, you know, then Jerry Manuel, who, uh, and I should back up, Larry Wolf was drafted, I believe, by the Minnesota Twins and you know, I, I guess maybe, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth round or something like that. And then, you know, Jerry Manuel uh, was right behind him. And, and Jerry and Mike Ondina, who you mentioned, was, uh, which, which is very hard to believe that they were on the first round draft choices in the nation off the same high school team the same year, if you can imagine. Uh, Mike, I think, went on to double or triple A, Mike Ondina, but Jerry Manuel, I mean, he played a few years in the major leagues, and he went on to uh, manage uh, the Detroit Tigers and the Minnesota Twins, or was it the Chicago White Sox? White Sox. White Sox. And the Mets. And yeah. then he was, what, manager of the year? Yep. And uh, I think Jerry right now is going to be the bench coach for the, the national team uh, for, you know, for the United States, what is in March? So, and then, you know, we had a lot of team, a lot of players that we played against, you know, Niles Nyman, though, let me back up again and get ahead. I'm getting excited. (laughs) Well, we're getting right into it. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, Niles Nyman, who could fly, he, I, and and it was funny is, is some of these guys, after we graduated from high school, I played against them, uh, in the minor leagues and, and I, I pitched against, uh, Jerry Manuel in the big leagues. I, uh, Larry Wolf in spring training, Niles Nyman in AAA. So I ended up f- facing my old teammates from Cordova High School. But the team was so locked up with great, great talent. And then, of course, uh, Coach Anderson, you know, Guy Anderson, he, he just had these wonderful teams coming through. And there was no one more passionate than, uh, than Guy Anderson. And, you know, the guys used to tease him, giving him a hard time because he was a little guy and, you know, he... He, he was just so passionate. He would go stomping around every time the guys would start laughing. 
at him. He, you know, was always take a lap, you know. And, and so uh, we had a great time while we were practicing. And then when we got out on the field, it was business. And, you know, I think we, what were we, Mike, but second or third in the nation uh, one year. And, yeah, uh, you were number two in the nation no, one year, number three in another. That 72 team, and they didn't play nearly as many games uh back then as they do now but that 72 team i think that went 25 and 3 uh, lost to kennedy in the section finals uh nine times out of ten you would have beaten him but that may have been you know guy's best team uh he'll also be a guest on this show moving forward but that 72 team was was certainly something special you know you had a great season uh you know obviously at cordova the last two years you were drafted uh, by the phillies in the eighth round you were a good hitting pitcher oh, okay. coming out of high school. I think one year you hit 360 for Cordova, and you actually pinch hit when you're in the major leagues. Back, but back then pitchers didn't hit until the DH came on board in 1973. But uh, you were a pretty good, pretty good hitter. And well, if there that, wasn't a spot for you on the mound, there certainly would have been a place for you defensively. Well, that's where I was going with the hitting thing because Dusty, when he introduced me, said, "You know, I could hit." He mentioned it, which he mentioned my hitting, not my pitching. But uh, yes, I, I actually people couldn't believe it when I said, "You know what?" Compared to to uh, hitting, I I hated a pitch because I just loved to hit and I could play every single day. And you know, when I when I uh, when I was traded for uh, the. When I was traded from the uh, Phillies uh, to the Brewers, I was traded for someone I had, a, Dick Davis. I had a higher uh, lifetime batting average than he did. And uh, uh, Harvey, the old Harvey Kane, Keane, he, he came and said, you know, I, I heard you could hit. Uh, this was in spring training. And, he, and Harvey said, Buck wants me to watch you hit. And uh, I talk about it in my book. And, you know, so I had to come after uh, after a game in spring training and hit for Harvey. And uh, I messed myself up because I hit the ball. I, I put on unbelievable display, hit a lot of home runs, line drives and stuff. And after I was done, Buck Rogers walked up to me. He goes, well, you did it for yourself now because now I want you to travel with the Milwaukee Brewers, a great hitting team, uh, as an extra pitch hitter uh, the, all of spring training. And I, I ended up uh, uh, with the Phillies. Uh, my claim to fame was hitting uh, two home runs and being a winning pitcher in a division clinching uh, championship game uh, against the, the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1978 in the second to last season, second to last game of the season. I was going to ask you about that game, but also another game that took place at Wrigley Field that uh, well chronicled that 23-22 to game that uh, you actually started and actually homered in. That was quite the game, wasn't it? Who would have known that that was going to end up that way? Uh, it, it was a funny story to that uh, because I was pitching really well earlier, uh, the, the few games before that, and I wasn't getting any runs. And, uh, you know, Larry Boa is kind of a, you know, he, he stirs it up in the clubhouse and stuff like that. And, you know, I didn't have any idea that when I started complaining, which is a no-no, that the hitters aren't hitting for you. And so I was complaining I wasn't getting any runs, and here we go uh, to Wrigley Field. In the meantime, Greg Luzinski, the great hitter for the Phillies, home run hitter, uh, he was in Philadelphia. Uh, he was uh, nursing an injury, and, he, and when I had complained about not getting any hits, uh, the, them not scoring any runs for me, 
here it is, uh, Greg Luzinski. He's he's collecting all the you know we I think we had five or six daily newspapers all print, <laughs> and he's collecting them all. And here he did he gets on the phone and he reads all these articles to Larry Boa of what I said about the team. Well, of course, Larry Boa goes and stirs it up in the clubhouse and tells the the whole team. You know, they, my nickname was The Blade. He gave me, Larry Boa gave me the, that nickname. He he called me, uh, after a good game, he said, uh, uh, thin as a blade, but sharp as a razor. And uh, so anyway, uh, the day was uh, at Wrigley Field. The wind was blown out. I don't know if anybody knows about the history of Wrigley Field, but boy, when the wind's blown out, the pitchers are in big trouble, and the hitters are going to fatten their RBIs and batting average up. So anyway, uh, we go out to play. The wind's blowing out like crazy. And we go out and score seven runs in the first inning against the Cubs. And uh, and I hit a home run, uh, you know, to finish it off. And so while I'm walking to the mound, Larry walks by me. And uh, he says, so is that enough, blankety-blank? And I said, blankety-blank, a right, uh, <laughs> blankety-blank. And... Uh, so I ended up giving up six runs, not making it out of the uh, uh, out of the inning. And the funny side story to that is Steve Carlton, who pitched—I think he pitched a shutout with no win. But I don't think you know Steve's going to pitch a lot of shutouts, win or not. And uh, you know during that game when I get knocked out in the first inning, uh, Carlton thought that he wasn't going to be available. Had no idea the game was going to go like that. He walks up to me and said, you know what, the tra- there's a lot of traffic after these games in Chicago. He says, let's head out to the airport, and we'll just meet the team there when they get there. And we don't have to wait in the traffic. we just go drink beer and wait for them. Turns out Steve Carlton and I are sitting in the uh, VIP lounge next to Jimmy Dean of Jimmy Dean's Pure Pork Sausage in the VIP lounge, uh, walk- watching Jack Brickhouse, uh, not uh, Harry Carey at the time, uh, announce the game. And uh, at, towards the end, the Phillies didn't have any more uh, players that were available except Carlton. And uh, here was Brickhouse said, well, the Phillies only have one, one more player available, Steve Carlton, and he pitched last night. And I, I started just laughing like crazy and nudged lefty Carlton and said, you know what? They said that uh, you're available to pinch hit or whatever. I said, no, you're not because you're sitting right next to me. <laughs> That's hilarious. And the, and the camera didn't uh, try and find Carlton in the dugout, obviously. They right? might have, <laughs> they, they might, but I knew he wasn't there. <laughs> That is great. Uh, the book is God in the Bullpen. We're here talking to Randy Lurch. And Randy, you know, obviously uh, those early years had a lot of ups and downs for you in your career. And, uh, you know, certain drugs were pervasive in Major League Baseball, and you write about it extensively in your book, uh, Greenies among them. What was a tipping point uh, early on that that became, you know, that was introduced into your baseball life? And what, uh, what happened? It, uh, it it was an amazing chain of events, Mike. I I ended up, in order to make the uh, Major League Phillies at 22 years old, I, I had been called up when I was 20 uh, from double-A. And uh, so, you know, I, I had had just a little taste of it, and then I ended up making the team, and I had pitched 26 scoreless innings in spring training uh, to, be, uh, to, to be named a starter uh, for the Phillies, along with Steve Carlton, Larry Christensen, uh, 
But in those days, we had Jim Lomborg, uh, Jim Cott, Ron Reed, Tug McGraw. I mean, we had some amazing older players. And to be to make the Phillies at 22 years old, and I think I was the number three starter. I either started the third or fourth game of the season after making the team. And I, I went up and, and uh, I, I remember the Dodgers uh, especially uh, went out and they, they were just killing everybody uh, at the first start of uh, 1977 season. And I won my first uh, five out of seven games. Even, even, won, uh, even beat the San Francisco Giants in Candlestick Park uh, with uh, the whole fire department. My dad, all of my dad's uh, firemen, uh, they rented two buses and they were all sitting in the park and, you know, they were cheering louder uh, in, in Candlestick Park than, than the, the Giants fans were. But, you know, I, I went out, was five and two, uh, was, uh, was really, really, you know, I was looked to, to, I was, of course, I was the next Steve Carlton and put all these names together. And so when, when I was five and two, I was going into uh, Houston and I won't name a teammate, but a teammate that I really looked up to uh, told me that, uh, you know, you're doing really well, but you're not really going to make it uh, a whole season unless you take these pills. And they were greenies and they were amphetamines. They were uppers. And the older players, uh, not the younger, were known to use those uh, to get through the season, uh, especially if they were older, older players. Because, you know, if you're, not, if you're not performing the way you're supposed to, the way you should, there's always a younger kid waiting to take your job. So this was in this person's uh, hotel room. And when, when they said, you know, this would really, really help you. And what was amazing is... I was somebody that I just got so nervous. I almost wanted to throw up before every game, but I didn't realize that that those nerves is what made me good because it made me really, really concentrate out there and not want to uh, do a bad job. Sure. So I ended up when I when I took that first greenie, it made me feel like holy cow! I wasn't nervous anymore. I was the, I threw harder than anybody in the world. I thought that I was the greatest pitcher in the world, and I didn't have to pitch or be careful anymore. And when I went out there uh, to pitch against uh, the Houston Astros, and you know they had a they they had some great players. They had Cesar Cedeno, and you know the pitchers were you know Jose Cruz, you know go on and on. But they they also had you know they had Nolan Ryan and and uh, I believe it was Nolan Ryan, but they 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 had Joaquin Andahar, J.R. Richard. I mean they had some some great players. But when I went out to pitch against uh, the Astros, starting off the season five and two. I thought, boy, this, this is great. I'll just throw it as hard as I can. I threw pretty hard, and uh, boy, did I get lit up. I I, I ended up, uh, I believe, giving up back to back to back home runs, almost uh, every time I let the ball uh, come out of my hand. And it's kind of funny in those days. Uh, they uh, Houston had this. It, they what was it? I believe they called the Astrodome as I think it was the only dome stadium in, in the United States or even the world at that time, or baseball stadium. But this thing was huge, and they had this um, this great display, great uh, scoreboard that was over. From, it went from right field uh, all the way, I think, to middle middle of center field or all the way over, it just did. right, it right did. over the stands, yeah. right. And it's funny, it, it, you can see it in my book, and we got a good picture of it. But uh, every time, uh, the you know, Houston's uh, 
visiting team, their adversary would come in, and, and if they if Houston did good against them, then they had this display that they would show the uh, Bulls bucking, the Cowboys uh, roping them, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, they, the Bulls were snorting, you know, snot coming out of their nostrils and everything else. And they, I believe they were singing uh, Deep in the Heart of Texas. Da, dun, da, da, I can hear it today, you know, listening to it. And it, this went on for three or four minutes. And, and then, you know, you had to stand there while the fans are cheering, uh, yelling at you. And here I'm a kid, 22 years old, doing great starting off the season. And then uh, I ended up, after all settled down, get back up, throw the next pitch. I think it was Cliff Johnson or one of them, a big old stud. He hits it over the, I remember, it hits it over the center field fence, and it happened again. Deep in the heart, then four minutes goes, and then I did it again. So, lo and behold, it's, uh, that, that ended up uh, really, that, that ended up really, uh, you know, setting me back. And I couldn't sleep that night, so I started drinking. And uh, so I had my greenies and drinking, and you'd think I'd quit, but it made me feel so good. I, did, I didn't have to worry about getting so nervous again. So that, that continued for the rest of my career, believe it or not. And then it perpetuated from there. Uh, there were other things that happened. I know uh, in 1980, <clears throat> you wrote in your book that being left off the postseason roster in a season that the Phillies ended up winning the world championship just devastated you. And uh, you wrote that it was a gut punch. But then something miraculously also happened uh, regarding uh, at the end of that World Series. Uh, miraculous happened to you. Tell us a little bit about that. Which you met a pastor, and I oh, think he was oh. one of the team pastors uh, that approached you in the stands. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. There, there was so there was so much happening at that time, and and uh, yes, uh, I was I was absolutely devastated. Uh, there was a lot of tears involved with that because, you know, here I was two years before I'd hit the, and here I am a kid that, you know, very young. I, you know, I think I was what, 24 years old or something like that, uh, 25. And, and, uh, I didn't know that baseball was a business. You know, I thought if you, if you showed you could do a good job, then, you know, the team had loyalty towards you. Sure. And I came to find out there is no loyalty. And it turned out that, uh, Dallas Green, the manager, uh, and I had some issues uh, because I had a I was inconsistent uh, after I started my my greenie thing, and and uh, Dallas was the minor league farm director, and he started writing in the papers and stuff that he has a lot uh, better uh, players in his minor leagues. Uh, they should get rid of Lurch and stuff like that. So when I hit the two home runs to beat the Pirates. I remember uh, the, the stupidity of a kid. I ended up uh, popping a cork of champagne right in his noggin, and uh, da Dallas Green didn't take that over too kindly. And, and uh, hit he him helped. right in the forehead, didn't yes, you? Yes, I did. I hit him right in the forehead, and the champagne went all over him. And uh, what a celebration that was! And you know, I <laughs> ended up, uh, you know, lo and behold, did I ever think he was going to be my manager? But he never forgot that. And he made he made that season just super hard on me. He was always riding me, and you know he just didn't like me. And I and the the year that I didn't make the 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 uh, you know the team for the World Series, I I had started I believe I had started 22 games or something that year. So I, you know I was a part of it, but I ended up four and 14, 
and I thought, well, you know, I, I had I had a lot of games that I didn't uh, I pitched really well, but I didn't get any runs. <laughs> so, but by by the end of the season, I just I wasn't uh, I wasn't competing very well at all, and and uh, when we ended up clinching, uh, you know, when, I believe it was in Montreal, Carlton pitched a, a heck of a game. Uh, we we ended up uh, you know getting ready to go to the playoffs, and I thought, wow, this is great. You know, here we are. We're going to get ready to, to to play. I I forget who it was. I think maybe it was the Dodgers in the playoffs, or or uh, maybe the Astros, but. Anyway, uh, we ended up uh, before that game, before the team left that night. Uh, I was talking to the owner, and he says, "Don't get so excited." And the owner, really Carpenter, was a wonderful man, and uh, he said to me, uh, "You know, you might not be on the roster." I didn't even understand what that meant, but what happened was uh, the Phillies didn't make me a part of the playoff roster or the World Series roster. They did offer uh, for me to, you know, to be a part of the team, except, uh, you know, be available. And, uh, uh, but I, I was so hurt that, you know, how could I sit in the, in the dugout and, uh, you know, not even be, be able to play or anything else. So I stayed home and here we go with the pastor because uh, when the World Series finally, the Phillies were, were going to clinch that night, I didn't know, but. I was sitting there just feeling so bad, but I made myself sit in the stands because I said to myself, you're going to sit in the stands so you make sure that this, that something like this never, ever happens again. And the pastor that I used to, uh, we used to do Bible study, the, the players on Sundays before the games, uh, the Christian guys or guys that wanted to hear uh, the, the, the Lord's word would get together and, and a special pastor would come in and, or a pastor, they're all special and, uh, and say the word and this pastor was my favorite and when he saw me so upset in the stands when the Phillies were about to clinch the World Series he came up to me he knew it had happened uh, he knew all the stuff that was going on from the papers and, and the way I was getting it from Green and all that stuff and you know, here I am. He gives me a hug, and he said, "See all those guys out there in the stand, out there playing." He goes, "Nobody deserves to be out there more than you." I know what's going on, and you know, of course, tears came run, running down my face. And you know, it sure—he's a special guy, and it helped me a lot. How many players would have had the the temerity to sit in the stands and watch their team play after having been left off the postseason roster? Uh, I can't think of any. I don't know of any. Uh, uh, anybody else that would have done that uh, that is just extraordinary but then again I think it might have been a divine appointment what happened after that day Randy after you talked to that pastor well after I, I talked to the pastor the Phillies won uh, the World Series and then the second hardest thing was uh, but just before that uh, I might say when when the the Phillies had won uh, the series in Houston and Tug McGraw, who was a, a, you read about it in my book a lot, how great Tug is, you know, helped to save my life. But, you know, he, uh, he I'm watching on TV and, and watching him clinch to come to Philadelphia to, to, you know, to play the final games against the Kansas City Royals. And, uh, of course, tears running down my face. They get Tug uh, uh, in the Houston dugout, or I'm sorry, in the clubhouse. And, uh, and Tug says, uh, you know, this is a great win for us. And, you know, that was one, if people remember, where 
the ball popped out of a fall ball popped out of Bob Boone's glove and Pete Rose caught it and uh, but Tug, Tug McGraw gets on there and he says this is a great sweet uh, win for us but the only thing uh, they would have made it sweeter if Randy Lurch was here to celebrate with us. Of course, I lost it again. He said that on national TV. National TV. Yes. And uh, and so that <clears throat> meant so much. And then, of course, I, I adored Tug. He was there to support me when I, I didn't, uh, wasn't uh, available for the World Series. And then the hardest thing, too, was to see, because I just loved Philadelphia and loved going down to Broad Street, uh, downtown uh, Philadelphia. And, you know, when the parade came about, and then they ended up uh, being in, I think it was JFK Stadium or whatever, after all the fans and everything. And I made myself watch that, too. And uh, it just hurt so bad. But uh, one of the hard time, hardest times of my life. You've already mentioned him once, but uh, Tug McGraw is frequently mentioned throughout your entire uh, throughout your entire book. You write that Tug was one of your best friends during your entire career. How did he save your life, and in what ways? Well, uh, Tug McGraw, uh, he was uh, he was always, uh, you know, kind of a... We, we kind of, going back to when uh, Tug, I believe Tug had just been traded... Uh, from uh, from the New York Mets, and you know, if people remember, I think the '69 Mets is yep. is when they had this this wonderful comeback. And I, Mike, you probably remember who they beat uh, in the World Series. Yeah, they beat the, the Orioles. They beat the Orioles. Yeah, the amazing Mets. Amazing Mets, and you know, Tug. Uh, I don't know if he got the final out in that one, but you know, he was on that team and very well known. Of course, he was a nut, so the. The, the New York press loved him, and the fans loved him. And so and being the goofball that he is, and, you know, when I was trying to make the Phillies team, uh, here's the spring training, I made it, but uh, I think it was the first practice or whatever. I'm starting to head out from, you know, the dugout, or not the dugout, I call it the, dugout, the clubhouse. And here's Tug, because I'm left-handed and he's left-handed, and he's an older player, I start to walk out. And he says to me, hey, kid. And I go, yes. You know, I didn't really that know that much about him at the time. He goes, hey, I'm left-handed. I, I go, okay. I didn't know. He goes, so are you. And I go, well, yeah, I know I'm left-handed. He goes, well, let me tell you something. I don't think you, you, you're very good. And he goes on stuff like that, trying to take my confidence away. And then all of a sudden, he just snaps. And he says, you know, hey, kid, let me tell you something. If you think for one minute you think you're ever going to have a chance to take my job, he goes, you got another thing coming. And, you know, I just shook my head. Uh, who is this, this nut? And, you know, from that time on, we had a special bond. We, we used to... Uh, Tug loved to see if he could outrun me. I, I ran pretty good, so we'd get out in the, uh, you know, in the outfield. We'd run. We'd play. We'd play games. Uh, uh, we'd go out in between, uh, you know, batting practice and stuff like that. And we'd play games to see where we could throw the ball and stuff like that. And he was always practicing with me, and we just had that bond. In the off season, he would come over to the house, and you know, his kids, uh, Mark and Carrie, at the time, we would go in, over to Philadelphia. He had a uh, kind of like a farm ranch house out there, and we would visit and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, I went years without seeing Tug, and then when I got into my big trouble uh, with, with the alcohol uh, 
and I was in really big trouble. Tug was there to uh, to help me. The book is God in the Bullpen, and we're talking today with uh, Randy Lurch. Randy, these are uh, this is a fascinating read, and I just got to say, you know, near the end of your career, you had many instances uh, where you admittedly backpedaled, uh, continuing to use alcohol and drugs, yet each time there seemed to be somebody there that was placed directly in front of you that brought you back and, and kind of righted the ship, uh, so to speak. In your book, you talk about uh, one of the guardian angels, uh, Jim Wolford, one of your Expos teammates. Uh, you were uh, there between teams, and he suggested you call Tom Haller, and that kind of paved the way for one of your last stopovers in baseball. Tell us about that's that. That's true. Uh, uh, Jim Wolford was, uh, he was one of the, you know, you see on a, a lot of uh, sports teams that, you know, the, the guy that is the, the, the person that everybody loves. He's the person that, you know, gets everybody together in a clubhouse and stuff like that. And uh, here Jim and I formed a bond. Maybe it was because I had that bond with Tug and then I was looking for another one. But uh, Jim, I called, I called Jim Wolford uh, my little buddy. And, you know, he, Jim had played a lot of years. And, and you know, at the, with the Expos at that time, he, uh, we, we formed that bond. And then Jim ended up uh, at some point uh, being traded to the San Francisco Giants. And I had been released uh, by the Expos that year. And uh, at that time, I had, I deserved everything I got. I, I just pretty much, ever since I, you know, when I, when I was, uh, uh, I was sold by the, uh, uh, by the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, I just pretty much had given up. And I wasn't doing the things I should be doing. And, and uh uh, Bill Verdon, the manager at the time of the Expos, had had about enough of my stuff. And like I said, I deserved it. And um, so I got released. And, boy, that was a wake-up call. But then I, I had uh, I had nowhere to be. Then I'm here I am sitting at home, and I'm still pretty young. And, uh, and so I didn't know what to do. But Harold always wanted to uh, play uh, in San Francisco. Tom Haller was the uh, general manager. So I called my little buddy Jim Wolford and asked him if he would, uh, you know, if he would uh, talk to Tom Haller for me. And you know, he set it up to where I could call Tom. And uh, Tom said to, uh, you know, to uh, he set it up to where I could uh, join the, the, the San Francisco Giants AAA team in Phoenix. I think it was Phoenix, Scottsdale, somewhere like that. But so I, I went and played there. And. I got my stuff together where I, I pitched well, and I was called up at the end of the season. Uh, Frank Robinson was the manager then, and uh, I got to play with the great Frank Robinson. And so I got ready to play for string, spring training uh, the next year. Turned out that Herm Sturette, the Phillies pitching coach, was the pitching coach for the San Francisco Giants at the time, so he put in a good word for me. And lo and behold, I ended up making the, the Giants and, and uh, had a pretty good year for them. You did. And in fact, how was it kind of finishing your career with the Giants? I mean, that was uh, your boyhood team. It was great. And what was so great about it was all the, the players that I looked up to, you know, they, they were around. You know, I, what's amazing is is I, I my my number one was Willie Mays. I used to emulate, even though I was left-handed, I used to, uh, I wanted to be a center fielder. I used to pretend like I was Willie Mays. But then you know, Willie McCovey was the first baseman. 
the Alou brothers were around, um, Jim Davenport, uh, but Tom, uh, not Tom, but uh, what I was going to say is, is I ended up, uh, uh, believe it or not, being able to pitch against the great Willie McCovey. And when, in San Francisco... Did you strike him out? I struck him out three times, <laughs> three times in a row. Here I'm thinking, I'm pinching myself that I'm, you know, I'm striking Willie McCovey out. And Willie, Mc, I found out how great he was because he didn't forget that. And when we went to Philadelphia, he had a, a three-run home run off me in right field. And I found out also how strong Willie McCovey was because he actually, won, I threw a slider away and he literally just reached out and one-armed it, just flicked the bat and knocked it into the second deck. Yeah, that's how powerful he was. But, you know, a lot of great memories to, to of the Giants. And what actually happened was uh, I, I, I think I was five and three. I had quite a few appearances. But this is the time when they the big leagues got in trouble. Major League Baseball got in trouble with collusion. And they were trying to get rid of free agency. So they weren't signing. Here I was again in a bad spot. But they, they ended up uh, not signing any of the players. Uh, and so... Most of the guys like me that were, you know, not great player, but a good player, uh, didn't get signed, and you were sitting out of here. You know, you talk about your book, uh, your, your Guardian Angels, and right. I, I have to share uh, a couple here, Gretchen and David, you write about uh, uh, very affectionately. Uh, how did they come to your aid? Well, uh, first of all, uh, David uh, Torres was a state trooper, uh, but this kid grew up, uh, his whole family, and they, we call them the Pineys. They were in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. They, they were a Puerto Rican family that lived out there, and uh, the, the kid would show up at, at uh, you know, a lot of events and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and so I got to know David by him being just such a, a great fan, and then... Uh, you know, got to know him again through that. And then Gretchen, when when I was in New Jersey and not knowing, not you know, no college education or anything like that, and just trying to live by, by you know, digging some uh, ditches and stuff like that, making $10 an hour, I decided, well, shoot, I'm from Philadelphia. Why don't I, uh, I run a pitching school? And so I ended up... Uh, a small, uh, I guess, a cable uh, channel. I, I I worked a deal to where they would promote my pitching school, and I I was I did a lot of that stuff. And Gretchen ended up have two boys. Uh, she uh, she was going through hard times herself uh, with family issues and stuff. So I got to know the family pretty good, teaching them how to the his. Uh, I think one son was eleven, the other was nine or something like that. And I uh, teaching him how to pitch, giving a lot of pitching lessons. So I got to know Gretchen, and you know, you when when I got to know Gretchen, I was really drinking a lot. And it's no it's it's no um, secret. You think you're you're you know you're kidding people, but you know when you're pounding vodka like I was at that time, uh, there's no secret. And she tells me later that she knew I was in trouble, and they kind of kept tabs on me, David and Gretchen. And paid a visit when they didn't hear from me from a while, and and found me, you know, passed out drunk on my floor, and uh, talked me to going to the hospital twice and going through detox. They, uh, if they wouldn't have found me, I would have died, no doubt in my mind. Guardian angels for sure. 
What was the defining point in your life where you finally stopped drinking? Uh, it was it was uh, it was cirrhosis. It was the uh, the day you got your cirrhosis diagnosis. The, it, yes, it was it was being diagnosed with cirrhosis. I knew, uh, uh, like I was saying earlier, that Hal Lurch, when he visited me, I was really sick. So I gave him a time to look at a lot of the, uh, the you know, the, my memorabilia and stuff like that. But I couldn't spend quality time with him. Uh, we, we went down to, uh, you know, to the river and, and looked at the, the Marshall Gold site and, and stuff like that. But I really couldn't spend a lot of time. Uh, so I was super sick when, when he was there. But I didn't know what was going on. But my belly was growing like crazy. Just after that, my mother came to visit. She, thank God, she she came to visit uh, many times because she loved my my special Maria, my wife, and so they got along so good. And I remember right after Hal left, my my mom, uh, my belly was getting pretty big uh, from all the fluid. People don't know it's uh, you know the the cirrhosis causes acetes. If I pronounce it right, but fluid build up in your belly, and I remember my mom. Uh, poking my belly and say, what's this? What's wrong with you? And I said, Mom, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I knew I was in big trouble. And then as time went on, my belly kept growing. I I, uh, I remember Maria and I, we, we had just moved. We had moved to, to uh, the Placerville area. And uh, we loved to make a garden. When in Gilroy, after uh, we got married, we, we would... Uh, we would do a garden together, and you know we tried to do that uh, uh, where we moved around here. And I was too sick to do anything. And as my belly grew, and I got sicker, I went to the doctor, and uh, they did a, a ultrasound, and I was uh, I, I was diagnosed with cirrhosis. I really. I and what knew, year? What what year was that? That was uh, 2016. Okay. And when I was diagnosed, that's that's the, the unbelievable story I, I talk about. And, you know, it was so heart wrenching to me because I in that that point, I thought I was going to die. I knew what cirrhosis meant. And when my, my little Maria crawled up in my lap and I almost cried thinking about it now, but she she's holding me and and uh, both of us just hanging on. And we both have tears coming down our face and. Her, she laid her head on my uh, on my shoulders and then looked up straight in my eye and uh, and she says don't leave me and I go oh man so uh, I didn't know what to say but all I just started crying harder and and ended up uh, she just holding her and then then she looked back up at me and you know we both were believers uh, in the Lord and then she says but if you do you promised to come back and get me. And I thought, oh, man. Wow, that must it, have really hit well, you. And after 40 years of drinking, Mike, that was my last my, my last day of drinking. And, you know, I, I definitely, uh, when, when I quit drinking, it was going to be difficult to quit because, you know, I went through the, the alcohol withdrawals and, and, and everything else. And then trying to, you know, all the, everything else that was surrounding me uh, by, you know, being terrified, uh, scared, having to quit drinking and, and everything else. Uh, it was a big deal to, to do that. But 
you know, by God's great grace, uh, you know, I quit. But I hadn't been to my liver specialist yet. And if you want me to go on and tell that story. Or... A- a- absolutely. I know there's a part two to it, and that's it. So please share. At that time, my the doctor that uh, sent me to the ultrasound, uh, he was my primary care doctor, and he, he said he would like me to go to the liver specialist. And so it was about a month later, because at, this, I, at, at that time, my belly was so big when I'd gone to my primary care that I, I couldn't, I, I was, I couldn't get, I couldn't hardly get up. I couldn't stand up. Uh, so he sent me to be drained, uh, what do they call it, a paracentesis or whatever. And so uh, I, was, I, I was in so much trouble that I would lay in bed and the, the fluid was pushing up against uh, my, uh, oh shoot, my, oh, what's it called? It helps you breathe. What, your lungs? My lungs, yeah. yeah push, there it is. But I, there was something below it. But anyway, it was, uh, it, it, I couldn't breathe. And I was, my, my wife Maria said I was whistling at night, and she was just terrified. And so I had to wait for five, six days to get to the hospital. And what they do is, I had no idea, but they, they, they stick a catheter in your side and, uh, and, you know, where the fluid's at. And I... The, the doctor only wanted them to take uh, 10 liters off of me, which is, is that's 22 pounds. And wow. they, they, they took uh, 10 liters off of me, and that was then, then the, they checked again to see how much I had left, and they said that was only the half of it. But I can only take so much off at, at that time uh, because it can hurt your kidneys. So once I went... Uh, had that done, and the doctor gave me some strong uh, diuretics, and hopefully, he says, I hope that you can, you know, get rid of this uh, the rest of the way. They said that you'd probably, I'd probably be over, back over to the hospital, get more of this stuff drained. Uh, all said and done, I, I had taken, uh, it was, uh, I take over, over, over 40 pounds of fluid off of me, and when I was weighing myself, I'd gone from, uh, my weight, like it is right now, about 210, 215. But once the the fluid started building up, I, I was 255. And after they drained everything off of me, my math isn't too good, but you get the idea that um, I, I was 170 pounds. So I was six foot five, 170 pounds with skin just falling off of me and in severe malnutrition. And at that time is when I went to my liver specialist he told me uh, they give you a score, it's called a melt score, that uh, they decide uh, where you will line up on the uh, you know, liver transplant list, how, how severely sick you are. And my doctor told me that he would like to put me on the liver transplant list, but I have to have a history a little bit of showing that I quit drinking or they won't do a transplant. And also uh, he knew I was in really severe trouble. so. When, when we got done with our meeting that day, uh, as we were walking out the door, uh, my, uh, my doctor put his arm, I'd met him just for the first time, my liver specialist put his arm around me and said, I just want you to know that you can go into liver failure any, any minute, any day. And so basically when I walked out the door, I was a walking dead man. And the, uh, you know, through 
get in the car and lots of prayers, and Marie and I decided that we were going to do everything we could, uh, by God's grace, uh, to live as long as I could. And uh, that's what we did, and that's how the book came in down the road. In the time we have remaining, I want to just talk briefly, and it, it, the story is heartwarming how you met your wife, Maria. I know you've been married for 18 years. I've met her a few times, a uh, lovely woman. Uh, kind of give us a, a quick recap how you two met. It's, it's, that's God's grace again. It's just, uh, just to start it off, Maria, uh, Maria was, uh, I was staying at, uh, at actually a Marriott uh, extended stay where I worked uh, in Morgan Hill. And, uh, and Maria was a housekeeper. And I ended up, uh, uh, I had gone through some real hard times with a, a previous marriage and I was super sad and uh, didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And she was somebody that cleaned my room. And she didn't know how to speak any English, but she went to her supervisors and asked how to write, uh, you know, are you okay? Hello. And then put a happy face. And uh, for, believe it or not, uh, for two years, uh, Maria was working there and, and was my housekeeper and and uh one day just so happened that that she was walking down the hall on a saturday and uh oh and i in between i had asked who is who's writing these things is it, oh that's maria i didn't even know who she was uh here was she's a tiny little girl she's five foot you know 105 pounds or whatever and they didn't even have a, a housekeeper uh, outfit to you know to fit her so they said she's over there and this thing was just hanging off her and she, she turned around and looked at me when I said, Maria, and she was just a doll. And, but I knew that I was, I was a lot older than she was, and I just wanted to, to, she looked like she needed a friend, and I definitely needed a friend, so I just invited her to go to coffee one day, and, and she spoke no English. Uh, she, we just looked at pictures together, and she, uh, uh, she, she showed me pic, you know, pictures of her family, and then she had a book that translated, and, uh, we've been together 18 years now. Well, that is fabulous, especially in an era of uh, technology and uh, social media. You two did it the old-fashioned yes, way. Yes, we did. And uh, that is refreshing to and hear. And she saved my life, for sure. Yes. Uh, it, well, it, one of many and probably, obviously, the most prominent one uh, of God's guardian angels that yes. came into your life, um, uh, for sure. Uh, as we finish up, I have some questions for you. And uh, you can answer them however you want, but uh, what one word would best describe Randy Lurch? Uh, humble and grateful. Oh, there's two. Uh, how about grateful? Okay. Very, very grateful. Yes, I, I would have actually picked that one. Yeah, I'm uh, very, very grateful. Definitely. If you could be one person for a day just beside yourself... Who would that be? Well, what a great question. I, I, besides myself. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I would like to be, uh, I would, uh, do I have to name a name? So. Um, this could be whoever you want. Yeah, if you could be one person. That's, that's really hard. I, I can't think of names, but I would like to be someone that, that's, uh, a great example uh, for others uh, to 
my, my dream, uh, my mission, Mike, is to be able to uh, spread the word of drugs and alcohol. And, you know, like we talked about, uh, my, my dream is to be able to, to speak to those that are struggling with drugs and alcohol and, and talk about, you know, what the Lord can do in your life. I, I would like to be a, a you know, a, maybe a missionary or something like that, but, I, you know. You know, Randy, you speak to groups large and small. You've made that known uh, over the last couple of years. You've spoken to groups as few as five and as many as 300. And what's your one underlying message that you would like to impart upon new folks that uh, perhaps are listening here today? One thing I did, Mike, is we... I. Because the book came out during the pandemic, it was so hard. You know, I couldn't get out and do any speaking events and, and engagements and stuff like that. And uh, through Hal Lurch, I, you know, we said, well, let's just get on uh, Facebook. And, you know, what, what I wanted to do was to just anybody I could talk to, to have an influence for people to, to uh, go through and have a better life. Uh, because in my book, anyone that reads my book will find out that you know, there's a lot of tragedies in my life, but they didn't end up end up as tragedies. But because of God, I mean, I you know, by me running the, you know, my my car off of a cliff and, and hitting a tree, and you know, I should have been dead. Dog attacks, just all kinds of stuff. And you know, I I it's horrible to go through that, and horrible to go through it because of what you did to yourself uh, through the abuses. And you know, by, by my walk with the Lord now has given me the opportunity. And when I went and get back to the Facebook thing, I made sure that every single person that friended me, I've got like 3,000 friends, I've personally written every single one of them. And anybody that's having a problem with alcohol or anybody I can help, I'm no expert. Well, kind of I am, I guess. But, but I, I, I just, would say that you are. I just want to share, you know, how they can change their life. Uh, with Jesus in their life. I, right now, my pet peeve is, is people that are judgmental over others because, you know, you don't know where that person's at, uh, what they've been through. And if you find out, then you'll, you'll be a little bit more easy on them. Good point. And uh, we know a lot of your talents are, are, are sports and writing. Are there any other hidden ta talents that we need to know about Randy Lurch? Well, I don't, I, I don't know if it's hidden, but I would like the people to know that, that uh, I'm, you know, I'm a compassionate person, and I love people. Uh, I'm kind of a, somebody that kind of doesn't, doesn't really go out and, and look to, to be around a lot of people. I'm kind of somebody that, that once I'm invited, I, I get there, and, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I love people. That, uh, that is fabulous. So what's next for Randy? What project are you working on now? Is there, any, is there a sequel or a, a different project that's, that you're working on now? I've never thought, I, I, I uh, wasn't, would never consider it, but now I, I would as, as I've grown out of, uh, out of this book because uh, I would like to, I've got a, a title in my mind of, of, of God after the bullpen. Uh, Marie and I love our church. Uh, you know, we one thing that Maria's uh, she, Maria's grandma died at 104 years old, and one thing Maria, oh, wow. uh, yeah, in Mexico in uh, in Tabiscatillo, Michoacan area, but uh, 
Maria was uh, was uh, raised by her grandma, and uh, we we the the thing uh, people say that don't get ahead of themselves. They say, as God says, He yeah, haven't given you tomorrow, but you know, uh, grandma always say one day at a time. So if if uh, we live one day at a time by God's great grace, and we we do our you know our stuff uh, trying to help others. That is fabulous. Randy, it's absolutely been a pleasure. The book is God in the Bullpen, and you're going to love it. And Randy, where can we find you? Uh, where can people find you? They can, they can find at, at randy.lurch at AOL. Uh, I'm sorry, not randy.lurch at yahoo.com. Uh, believe it or not, I'm going to be uh, at uh, City Hall tomorrow from, uh, from 11 to 3 uh, signing my book. But I'm, I'm out and about. I would like people, if anyone wants to uh, to hear uh, hear my word, hear me uh, me share my story, uh, you know, get a hold of me. And your book's available still on Amazon. I yes. know that. So, again, been a pleasure. This has been fabulous. You've done a great job, buddy. Well, You're thanks. My my first shot at this, and we'll see uh, moving forward. But uh, thanks again for coming oh, in today. You warm my heart, buddy. Thank you. <laughs>